All right, we are continuing our study through the Gospel of Matthew here on the Listener's Commentary. And in this recording, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. At this point in the Gospel, we are still in those early chapters where Matthew is really laying the groundwork for the Gospel about Jesus. And through the genealogy, he's shown that Jesus has royal blood in his veins, that he has the right lineage and status to be the Messiah. He's shown that he is God's king, come to enact and fulfill God's promises to restore his people and ultimately to restore all things. What he does here in chapter 3 is he jumps ahead in Jesus' life story to his baptism. And so when we last left off, Jesus was a toddler returning from Egypt to Israel to Judea and then from Judea up to Galilee and to Nazareth. Now he jumps ahead to when he's about uh, 30-ish years old. And so we have fast-forwarded quite a ways into Jesus' life and we're coming to his baptism. And as we've noted in these early chapters, Matthew is trying to give us a variety of snapshots to orient us to who Jesus is. He's the royal Messiah. He's Uh, He was conceived by the work of the Holy Spirit. He's the fulfillment of the promise that God will be with us to deliver and to save. He's the true king of the Jews, and as a result, the true king even of the whole world. Well, here in chapter 3 with his baptism, Matthew offers another snapshot showing us further how Jesus is the very Son of God who will bring God's kingdom to this world and with it the promised Holy Spirit. The snapshot begins by introducing a a brand new character in the story, and that character is John the Baptist. And so Matthew chapter 3 picks up like this. Now, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, We know the origin story of John the Baptist from Luke's gospel. So if we have read Luke's gospel, we know that he is Jesus' cousin. And we know that he is born to Elizabeth and Zechariah in a miraculous sort of way. Matthew doesn't give us all those details. He just has us meeting John the Baptist here in the wilderness of Judea. And that area, the wilderness of Judea, refers to the desert region east of Jerusalem, out there between Jerusalem and the Jordan River. And we learn shortly that he's out by the Jordan River where he's baptizing people to really demonstrate and embody their repentance. And Matthew summarizes the message of John the Baptist very much this way. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the phrase kingdom of heaven is synonymous with the phrase kingdom of God. It refers to God's active and effective rule. That is, it's the realm where God is king and what he wants done gets done. In fact, that's how Jesus is going to teach us to pray a little later in the gospel, right? That we're going to pray for your kingdom to come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the kingdom of heaven. According to the Old Testament, God is the king. He's the king over all. He reigns over all things. But uh, there is that recognition in the Old Testament that God's kingship isn't always realized because human beings Uh, And other free will creatures are in rebellion to him. So there's this hope, this expectation in the Old Testament poets and prophets for a time when God's kingship will, will come 
more fully, more completely, and effectively rule over all of creation. That's what faithful Jews were longing for in Jesus' day. They were longing for God's reign to come. That's the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of heaven. God's rule, God's reign. Well, according to John the Baptist, it's now at hand. And Matthew will show us it's at hand in the arrival of Jesus, the king. So John the Baptist comes and is calling people to repent and to submit to God's reign in preparation for the king's arrival. That's really the essence of John the Baptist's ministry. And Matthew tells us that this too, that that John the Baptist's ministry, it too is in fulfillment of God's promises. And so look at verse 3 of chapter 3. He says, For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, the voice of one calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. This quote is from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And Isaiah 40 begins a major section in the book of Isaiah that highlights uh, the good news of God's return to his people and uh, Israel's return from exile. And Matthew sees Jesus as the very Lord in the words of one scholar, the very Lord who is enacting and embodying Yahweh's restoration of Israel. That's who Jesus is. And so here's John the Baptist out there in the wilderness uh, doing the work of preparing the way of the Lord. And the imagery here is of a royal herald or a royal forerunner who is announcing the news that the king is coming to his land. And so they all need to get ready and they all need to make preparations. They all need to level out the paths, remove any obstacles and make way for the king because he's coming. And so John the Baptist is that herald. He's that forerunner and Jesus is the king. He's the Lord who is returning to his realm. Then Matthew actually does something interesting. He gives a description of John the Baptist. Look at verse 4. Now, John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts, grasshopper-like creatures, and wild honey. Rarely in the Bible do we get such descriptions of people's clothing and people's appearance. So when we see them, we should actually pause to consider, why is this here? Is there anything intentional or important about this? And there is in this case, the idea of John being hairy or wearing this garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist seems to intentionally echo the description of Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8. And this intentionally then connects John the Baptist with the promise from the prophet Malachi that there will be one like a second Elijah who would, who would come before the day of the Lord, before the Lord would return to Israel. And so in providing us this little detail, Matthew alerts us to who John the Baptist is. He is that, uh, that one that Malachi had promised would come before the coming of the Lord. And all of this doesn't just help us see John the Baptist more clearly. It also helps us see who Jesus is more clearly, which really is at the heart of what Matthew is doing. Now, Matthew goes on in verses 5 and following and describes the ministry of John the Baptist. And so he says, At that time, Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him into the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. A couple things just to note is just the geography. 
This illustrates really our need to kind of have a mental map of the geography of the area when we're reading the Bible here in this case, when we're reading one of the Gospels. And there's going to be other places that are mentioned, and the more we can have sort of a mental map to help navigate the ter terrain and the geography will really be helpful to us. And so uh, if you're reading your Bible, uh, it might be it'll have maps at the back. If you're looking online, I would encourage you just to kind of Google like uh, Israel in the time of Jesus, and it'll, it'll at least help you put together the pieces. And so Jerusalem, um, we should be able to locate where that is, kind of uh, in the hill country, uh, just to the west of the northern edge of the Dead Sea. Uh, and then Judea is the Roman political district around Judea. So it's the region, the larger region around that. And then the Jordan River is the river to the east of Jerusalem. Um, and that region around the Jordan River, particularly on the eastern side of the Jordan River, is called Perea. So that's the area we're in. Um, and we need to have that figured out. And then they're being baptized by him into the Jordan River. Um, and, and that helps us understand that um, the word baptized refers to being dipped or immersed into the river. And so they're coming to him. They're being plunged down into the river as they confessed their sins. But, verse 7, when he saw, that is when John the Baptist saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you offspring of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Um, John's kind of an in-your-face sort of guy, and this phrase, you offspring of vipers, is really a, a picture of evil, of poison, right? Like vipers being poisonous snakes. And so, you guys are like poison. Uh, you're evil, and who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, he's saying this to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Who's that? Well, they are two key groups among the Jews, the Jewish people of the day, uh, that kind of have different approaches to things. They're kind of like two religious sects, if you will. And they're going to factor later into Matthew's story of Jesus and the gospel, and so they get introduced here, and they get introduced already uh, in a way that highlights us, alerts the reader to the potential that these guys might actually be the bad guys, even though um, they weren't, you know, generally speaking, viewed that way. There's actually a document that I've put in the study hub in the introduction to the Gospels that gives some details about both groups. But in general, the Sadducees were ruling aristocrats from the priestly class who controlled the temple uh, but they also tended to collaborate with Rome and thus had power and wealth and status and wanted to protect some of that. And religiously, they uh, were a group of people who really only viewed the first five books of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, as authoritative. The law of Moses was authoritative. Everything else uh, really did not count for them or have the same authority for them as the Torah. The Pharisees, uh, they were a Jewish purity movement, uh, and they had all sorts of traditions in their effort to keep the law as meticulous, meticulously as they could so that they could be pure. And they had a lot of popular appeal. They were often the ones who uh, kind of ran the synagogues and taught the children and all that. And so they were a very popular Jewish purity movement. Now, what we'll see as we go through the gospel, beginning here and throughout, is they're often painted in a negative light, but not 100% and not exclusively. And we need to make sure we don't uh, paint with such a broad brush that we say all Pharisees were this or all Sadducees were that. 
Um, John here challenges these people who were in positions of influence, and his question really seems to focus on whether they're coming to baptism with the right heart, and do they really recognize their need for repentance as well? Like, why are you doing this? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And so John the Baptist continues in verse 8 saying, therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. That's what he wants. Like, if you're coming recognizing that you need to repent, recognizing that you too have sinned, recognizing that you've been unfaithful, then you need to produce fruit in keeping with real repentance. And then he goes on in verse 9 and says, and don't assume that you can say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I will tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. What is he getting at? Well, what he's saying is, don't think you're secure. Don't think you can avoid God's wrath. Don't think that all is going to work out well for you simply because of your heritage, simply because you're descendants of Abraham. And so we need to, again, remember that Abraham was the founding father of the Jewish nation. God had called him, promised to give him descendants like the stars in the sky and the sands of the sea. And God told him that through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And his offspring, his descendants, were the Jewish people. And what John the Baptist is saying there is just because you come from Abraham's line doesn't automatically mean you're faithful to God and you're good to go. Uh, God is capable of raising up children to Abraham in uh, other ways. In fact, the Apostle Paul argues in both Romans and Galatians that anyone who has the same kind of faith as Abraham is actually a descendant of Abraham if they're in the Messiah. So John the Baptist's words really are a challenge to these religious leaders to make sure their heart is right and make sure they're really seeking to repent and be faithful to God. And John goes on in verse 10 and says, And the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is being cut down and thrown into the fire. The picture is of an unfruitful tree that just needs to be cut down and used for firewood. Good fruit refers to what people do. It's their manner of living. And any tree that doesn't bear good fruit, in other words, any person whose manner of living doesn't produce the kind of fruit that God requires. And because um, Israel in the first century was an agricultural society, such imagery, agricultural imagery, is, is going to be common in the, uh, in the gospel and Jesus' teaching. It was common in the Old Testament. Uh, Israel, for example, in Isaiah 5, is compared to a vine. Uh, Jesus is going to use the imagery of a good tree that produces good fruit in his preaching. And so this kind of imagery is, is going to be really important for understanding Jesus. Uh, John goes on and says in verse 11, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. These words uh, show us that John knows who he is. He knows his role. He's the forerunner. He is the royal herald, if you will, who's coming to prepare the way for the king. So John knows he's not the Messiah, and he's not going to try to usurp the Messiah's place in his quest for his own status and sense of importance. In fact, John doesn't believe that he's even worthy to perform the lowliest service of untying his sandal. This may seem a little strange to us, but this idea of untying someone's sandal and removing it, taking off, was viewed as such a lowly act 
that even though disciples of a rabbi were expected to carry out many of the servant's duties on behalf of their rabbi, the one one of the key things they were exempt from doing was actually untying the sandal. So when John says he's so low compared to the Messiah, that he's actually too low to actually do that task. He knows that compared to Jesus, he is uh, a lowly servant. That's the way he views himself. And he says that uh, the Messiah, the one coming after him, is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And the Holy Spirit becomes a distinguishing mark of uh, the ministry of Jesus and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. In fact, when you read the later New Testament, being in Christ is marked by uh, having the Holy Spirit. And the Old Testament prophets had said that in the days of the Messiah, God would pour out his spirit on all people. And so John is very clearly marking a difference between his ministry and the ministry of the Messiah. The other thing John says here is that he will also baptize with fire. What does that mean? Well, there are really two options. One is the fire of God's purifying presence. For example, when the Holy Spirit is poured out in Acts chapter 2, the initial fulfillment of the pouring out of the Spirit, fire accompanies it. And God frequently appears in the Old Testament as fire, like the burning bush with Moses and some of that. Uh, And it seems to represent God's presence as a purifying fire. Maybe that's what uh, John means by saying the Messiah will baptize with fire. The other option is the fire of God's judgment. In fact, you can see the following verse immediately after what John says about burning up the chaff. Um, And fire is frequently associated with judgment in the scriptures. So one of those two options is what we're looking at. And perhaps in this case, we shouldn't distinguish too strongly between the two. That is, it might actually be best to say that when God returns to his people, uh, for those who repent, God's presence will be a purifying fire. But to those who don't repent, it'll turn out to be a fire of judgment. And John actually continues on with his description of the work of the Messiah. And so he says in verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. This is a picture from the common harvest season of the day where you would winnow the wheat to separate the husk from the kernel. That's what he's dealing with. And so he goes on and says, he will gather his wheat into the barn and he will burn up the chaff. That is all the husks of the wheat. Uh, He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And so during harvest season, you take this large wooden fork type thing and it's a winnowing fork and you throw uh, the wheat up into the air after you'd run a threshing sledge over it, and the wind would catch it, and the husk would be blown off, and the kernel would be, uh, would remain behind. And so he's using that imagery to say, this is what the Messiah is going to do. He's going to, he's going to sort it out. He's going to separate the good wheat from the useless chaff, the useless husk. And so John is calling people to repentance, and many of the people are coming uh, and being, uh, repenting and being baptized by him. Well, it's in that scene, that situation, that we pick up in verse 13 with the arrival of Jesus 
at John's place of baptism. And so verse 13 says, then Jesus arrived from Galilee. So Galilee is the region way up north around uh, the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus has traveled from the north uh, to the Jordan River um, out there east of Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus has arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and yet you're coming to me? In other words, John knows who Jesus is. He recognizes his superiority, and he doesn't feel like he, I mean, if he shouldn't untie his sandal, he definitely shouldn't baptize him, right? That's the idea. But Jesus answering said to him in verse 15, allow it at this time, for in this way, it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he, John, allowed him, Jesus, to be baptized by him. And the baptism of Jesus by John really marks the official formal beginning of Jesus' public ministry. That's the role it plays in Jesus' life. That's the significance of it being recorded in the gospel, not only the gospel of Matthew, but all four of the gospels actually record this moment because it's such a big deal. This is the official beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Jesus isn't baptized for repentance. He's not baptized for the forgiveness of sins as others are. Nevertheless, he, as Israel's Messiah and thus Israel's representative, is going to go through the same experience as Israel in order to be really initiate this new stage of God's redemptive work. And that's probably what he's getting at when he says, for it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. That phrase has created a lot of scholarly discussion, uh, trying to sort out exactly what's meant. But it probably has to do with John's role and Jesus' role and this moment being central to what God is doing, not just in and through Jesus, but on behalf of the whole nation of Israel. The idea of righteousness is doing what's right between people. It has a relational quality about it, and that includes between people and God. Um, doing the right thing between God and people and doing what's right for them. And so the basic idea here seems to be what's right for Jesus in his vocation as Messiah and what's right for him as Messiah between himself and God, between himself and the people, and between himself and John. This is a critical moment where he's going he's gonna to don the mantle publicly of a teacher, and he's going to assume the role of his uh, ministry. And that's why John has been saying the kingdom of God is at hand, and that's why Jesus is going to begin to say the exact same thing. We're moving into now the public work of Jesus as Messiah. And after he was baptized, verse 16, Jesus immediately came up out of the water. And behold, he saw the heavens opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling upon him. And behold, a voice from the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. As we noted above, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, will be a key hallmark of Jesus' ministry as Messiah for himself, and it's really by the Spirit that he's going to do these great works throughout the, the land, and it's also going to be a key hallmark of his ministry in his followers um, in the future when he pours out his Spirit on all those who are in him. 
And here, the coming of the Holy Spirit signals the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and the Spirit then is going to empower Jesus for that ministry. And the voice of God announces and confirms Jesus' identity as Messiah and as God's Son. And that's really been at the heart of what Matthew's aim has been in these early snapshots of his gospel, to show us who Jesus is. He's the Messiah. He is God's royal Son. And so now this voice from heaven confirms it for Jesus in this moment, and also for us as Matthew's readers. We are let in on the secret that that's who he is. And these words echo probably several Old Testament passages, but one of the key ones is Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Psalm chapter 2 is a psalm about the coming Messiah, the Davidic king. And in that context, God speaks to uh, the, the king and says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And similar words are actually going to be repeated from the heavens by God, uh, to Jesus at the transfiguration in Matthew 17, 5. And so these words are God's way of affirming to Jesus, this is who you are. This is your vocation. It's time for you to carry forward with the mission and the ministry. And so Jesus has come to fulfill all that God has planned for him. And God confirms his identity and his role by announcing that he is indeed God's beloved son. And all of this makes the point that the king, Jesus the king, is on the move, uh, that he is returning to his realm, and that the kingdom is now at hand. And this is central to the gospel, to Matthew's gospel, and to the gospel message. It is the gospel of the kingdom, after all. Jesus is the king, and he comes as the culmination of the story, and he's bringing God's kingdom, God's reign, God's wisdom and good rule to this world. All right, thanks for tuning in to this session on the Listener's Commentary. The Listener's Commentary is a listener-supported, crowd-funded Bible teaching ministry that is made possible by the generosity of folks just like you. And so, from the bottom of my heart, let me say thank you to those of you who have made this ministry possible. God is bearing good fruit all around the world because of your generosity. So thanks a ton for that. And if you have been blessed and impacted in some way by this ministry, would you prayerfully consider joining the team of supporters? The ministry has continued to grow. Costs have continued to rise. Uh, need for administrative help has continued to increase. Um, and your generosity would enable this ministry to continue to not only expand, but more importantly, to be used by God to bear good fruit all around the world. So if you in some way are able to join the team of supporters, you can swing over to listenerscommentary.com. You can click the Give button. It'll redirect you to a page through World Family Mission, kind of an umbrella organization that oversees the financial aspect of this ministry. Um, and you can set up a recurring monthly donation right there. Just put in an amount, click the box that says Make This Monthly. You can give a one-time donation right there. Or you could also just sign up for the Study Hub and give what you can afford right there as another way to support this ministry. All monthly donors get access to the material inside the Study Hub which is an ever-growing collection of articles and um, videos and maps and charts and various things to help you dig in and learn and live the scriptures. So thanks a ton for your support.